Welcome everyone to another episode of the Nodotaku Gaming Podcast. This week we have another special guest. Um, I will let him introduce himself. Please introduce yourself, sir. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Rama Ismail. I'm a independent game developer. I used to be the co-founder of an independent game studio in the Netherlands called Vlambeer. Uh, I was raised as a Dutch Egyptian, have been making games for 10 years and uh, have worked in the industry as an ambassador for games development worldwide. Uh, I also made a bunch of tools and kind of just traveled the world, meeting developers everywhere. Awesome. You sounded like you were second guessing yourself there when you said 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, time goes fast, doesn't it? Like, to me... You know, this has always kind of been a dream uh, since I was like six years old or something. So, you know, when you get there, there's sort of like this um, this whirlwind of, of time. Like, I, I remember years not by what year it was, by what game I was working on, you know, that kind of thing. So things things have moved fast and 10 years is, you know. It is a long time. It is. It's been a good time. I'm sure it has. I don't want to neglect my co-host as usual. Robin is here. What's up, Robin? Hey, Dennis. How are you doing? I'm okay as usual. Just uh, nothing out of the ordinary. Playing whatever is new. Sure. Checking out that new Forza Horizon game. It's, it's pretty fun. I like how you're like, oh, everything's chill, but you've just been like, where's Elden Ring? Where's Elden Ring? <laughs> Look... That, that that's a whole we'll talk about that later <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure we will. don't want to derail it so quickly <laughs> yeah. so yeah mr rami um i'm kind of interested mostly like i i know you're a game developer mm-hmm. and we have already had a game director on so i want to talk mostly about um what you've been doing in terms of like like as a um international indie games like Ambassador, I get an ambassador, kind of yeah, an ambassador, yeah. especially for like regions which are never put on the map when they're announcing server locations or release yeah. dates or anything like that. For sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, what made you decide to um, be a voice care. for that? Yeah. Well, yeah. What made you care? Like, why were you like, yeah. hmm, this is weird? Why aren't these voices being? Like I said, I was raised Dutch Egyptian, right? I grew up in the Netherlands most of my life, and at some point you start to sort of start realizing that in all my games, in all my big like blockbuster games, I was playing people that looked like my Dutch friends, and I was shooting people that looked like my Egyptian friends, right? Because all these big shooters are about like conquering the Middle East or like uh, liberating an African country or like uh, stopping the drugs cartels and south america or like fighting in vietnam or any of that and i realized that i was wondering where all the other games were like surely if all these games exist from this perspective there must be games being made from the other perspective right can't be that the only place where games are being made are the us or japan so um early on when um when my my former game studio flambeer when that started I was a university dropout in the Netherlands, so I didn't have a lot of money. And the press in the Netherlands, the games press, has a very limited reach because they write in Dutch, obviously. But there's not a lot of people who speak or read Dutch. So to get the news about our games out, 
we had to travel to London, but we didn't have money to go to London. So uh, somebody told me that one way you could get money to travel was by doing public speaking, uh, giving talks about how you make games and uh, the things you learn. And I had done some debate class in the past and, you know, I'd been on a stage for first stuff before. So I was just like, okay, well, I'll try that. So I gave some talks in the Netherlands. And then at one of those, there was somebody from the UK and they invited me over to speak in the UK and paid for my hotel and my flight. And then at that event in the UK, there were some people from events at the US and they invited me over. And before I knew it, I was traveling across the ocean, right? Like for a kid that had really only been to the Netherlands and Egypt and then like a school trip to Paris and uh, a school trip to Rome, uh, flying across the ocean was like unbelievable, right? So I kept giving talks and my talks really quickly became very popular because uh, very early on when independent games were just sort of like turning into the, the culture that they are now, the idea of making money with games was sort of a faux pas. Right, you weren't supposed to. You were supposed to be an artist about it, not make money, but make art. And you know, like I said, I'm half Egyptian. My dad is Egyptian, and <laughs> I don't know if it's the same for you. But if you tell your dad you're going to be a game developer, they're like, "What do you mean, Nintendo? You don't. <laughs> that's not a job. You can be a doctor. You can be a lawyer. You can be an engineer. You can't be a Nintendo. What does that mean?" Yeah. Um. So my dad just kind of thought I was going to play games. So for me. Part of what I wanted to prove was that this was a job, right? And that this was something that I could sustain myself with. Because my dad isn't doing it from a bad place. He just really wants me to be able to pay for my life, yeah. right? To, to have a home and have a family and sustain myself. And, uh, you know, from, from a poorer country like, like Egypt, that makes a lot of sense, right? That's how life is over there. It's not as cozy as in the Netherlands where if you, you, know, you don't get a job, you'll get like government support and like you know you're dependent on your family and you're dependent on on the people around you and you're dependent on your ability to to pay for life so uh, it makes a lot of sense that he had that focus but i brought that focus with me into indie games so i was very much about marketing i was very much about um making money uh selling games um you know making sure that this would be a living the early talks i did were very practical um, and those got really popular. So the the thing that started happening is I started getting these invitations to speak as my talks got more popular. They spread around the world via YouTube and I don't know where. I started getting these invitations from places that I just never thought about as game development places like uh, Uruguay and Indonesia and, um, you know, all sorts of countries around the world that were making games but I just never considered that they were making games. And this was at the same time that I was getting really annoyed that every game I was playing, you know, effectively just like very white people yeah. shooting brown, brown people. people. Yeah. So I just kind of went like, you know what? I want to go to those places. So when I would get an invite, I would go like, okay, can you afford to fly me over and get a hotel? And they'd go like, no, we're like 12 people in the entire country making video games. <laughs> we, we can't afford flying you over. That's not a thing. So... I wanted to go to those places, but it never worked, right? And then in 2013, Flambeer released its first hit game. It was called Ridiculous Fishing. It was a game about fishing with machine guns. Long story, don't ask. Um, but uh, that game made a lot of money. 
especially for two kids who started a game studio, right? So I went to my co-founder and I basically said like, hey, is it okay if I take some of this money and spend it on going to all the places that have invited me um, and, and talk there? So I took a bunch of that money and I just started traveling. Every place that had sent me an invite, small country, big country, far away country, whatever country, uh, I went there, uh, you know, sometimes to huge cities, metropolises around the world, sometimes to like tiny rural villages that just happen to have like 12 independent developers there. Mm. Um, and just everywhere I would go and I would talk about the things I'd seen and the things I'd learned and the, the connections that I'd have. Um, and I would try to share that with as many as many people as possible. And that in exchange, obviously, when you go to a place, there's no way to not learn. Right, because all these places have different culture, different background, different attitudes towards creativity, different ways of setting up their teams, different ways in which management works and which collaboration works. So everywhere I would go, I would teach, but I would learn. So as I traveled, I got better at teaching, which meant I could go to more places, which meant I would learn more things. So at some point, it was just who I was. Like, yes, I was a game developer, but I did not expect to be this uh, public figure, effectively, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it became what I was known for. It became who I was. So I just I kept doing it, and I obviously got better at helping. So I got better at talking to like governments. I got better at like uh, helping people connect to investors or do the games press and. Really, all I'm doing is I'm trying to make sure that no matter where people are, they have the same opportunities as they would have in the UK or the US without making everybody dependent on the UK and the US. Because yeah. that's how that usually goes, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I have something to, to ask on that. So, like, yeah. um, I know that the game industry, as big as it is, it's the biggest like entertainment industry, but it's actually kind of small. Like, the actual industry people... The, the the Western ones anyway, the Americans in the UK, they're actually quite small. They kind of know each other. And, you know, even the publishers and all that stuff, like going to a GDC or going to an E3, you know, meeting people face to face is a big deal. Like I can look you in the eye and say, hey, dude, I've got this crazy idea, a house that has legs. And I don't know, it's got a sniper rifle. And you're like, because you're looking me in the eye, you're like, maybe that might work, you know? Whereas if I just send an email with that pitch, it's going to be like, what is this ridiculous thing? So yeah. those opportunities are not really available to a lot of the other regions. So um, have you noticed any alternative to something like that? Because for someone like me to go to a GDC, I have to, first of all, raise a lot of money and then hope that my visa is accepted. Visa gets approved. Yeah, I've worked with a lot of people on getting a visa to GDC. And it's hard, right? Uh, especially if you go into Africa or, or Latin America, like visas get a lot more complicated really, really quickly. But yeah, there are alternatives. And I think every country, every place has its own alternatives. Um, for example, in Africa, um, I've heard a lot of um, uh, I've heard a lot of success stories working with local funding. Uh, telecom providers uh, have been looking into games in the region uh, and there is money in the region as well for uh, entrepreneurship especially digital creative entrepreneurship so uh, there are opportunities there but they obviously require you to adjust what you're making 
to a bit more of a business-to-business product. If you still want to do games the way you do it, your strongest bet right now is that a lot of the platforms have started to realize that they're missing out on a lot of games, a lot of unique games, a lot of games that you can't get in the West because people have similar attitudes, similar backgrounds, similar perspectives, right? So there's a lot of um, diversity programs right now that are specifically built to ensure that people have the money to make their prototypes. And I think that's the biggest hurdle because like you said, if you meet people face to face, it's a lot easier to believe them. But I think a lot of publishers still want to see a prototype, a build, something that is a, a little more real, especially from a young team or a team that they don't know. And I think getting the funding and the time to make a good prototype is actually the biggest obstacle in the region. Um, it's not the connection because like, you know, we're having this conversation right now. It's usually you're one or two steps away from somebody who knows everybody. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know somebody like that, they can make what we call a warm introduction. Right. But then the question becomes, okay, what do you have to show for for the game? So that prototype, that ability to communicate uh, what you're making and why it's special that's really important. The other thing that I think is really important is just, you know, one of the advantages of being a GDC is that you get to learn the language of the games industry, right? The amounts, the numbers, the the way people think and the way people discuss deals and can you, can you um, give me an example timelines. Of, of something like that? Like, not specific, like for example... Yeah, yeah. For example, um, if you are based in um, if you are based in Egypt, right? Because I just know the economical situation there. Um, One dollar stretches twenty to thirty Egyptian pounds, right? Twenty to thirty Egyptian pounds buys you, you know, it's not a lot, but it buys you more than one dollar would, you know, uh, for for normal day to day life. So, with one dollar, you'd be able to do a lot more uh, with with. 30 Egyptian pounds, you'd be able to do a lot more than you would be able to do with $1 in the US. Yeah. Right? So, a lot of Egyptians, when they go in for negotiations with publishers, they try to use that to lower their budget. Because they say, we can be cheaper. Right? We're less expensive, so we're less risky. Ah, I see. And that's a mistake. Because the problem is that the publisher is still going to be making profit in US dollars. They're selling the game for $12.99. They're not selling it for 100 Egyptian pounds. They're selling it for $12.99. And if you ask for $70,000 for your video game, $20,000, $30,000 for your video game, then they're going to break even in what? Like 2,000 copies? Yeah. That's basically no risk for a publisher. So because people aren't having these conversations, how do you figure out the price when you talk to a publisher? Right? You figure out the price by thinking about how much are they going to make because as long as you're asking less than what they're going to make, it's a good deal for them. But people try to people try to like make themselves small, right? We we lack a little bit of confidence in the business, and it's not because we're not confident about our work. It's because it's impossible to get access to the information because you you can't go to these events where these conversations happen. And I think that's a really big obstacle. Is is just. It's really hard to figure out how this works if there's nobody in the region that has done it. True, true. So you get a chicken and egg situation. Nobody's done it, so nobody can ask how. Because nobody can ask how, nobody does it. <laughs> Very true. Um, 
based on that though um looking at it from a very um capitalistic point of view isn't it then um a good deal for publishers to kind of like have satellite studios in these in our regions because it's cheaper to do that instead of having a, a studio based in san francisco why isn't that a thing like i know so that's it exploitative is a... but like, right that seems so, like a no-brainer to me like all business that is a thing and like you said it's exploitative right um the thing is the second part of that question is how hard is it to set up a satellite studio in a place and uh, that's mostly about very big government level things like tax um uh, tax treaties between countries freelancing rules employment law uh how easy it is to get money in and out of the country right what kind of talent is there how easy it is to centralize that talent into one place um how easy it is to communicate between locations right so um, everything from economy to how much people speak English to how easy it is to get talent. All of those parts are important. And training talent is actually relatively expensive. So usually what happens is there will be a studio in a place that just sort of like trains people up. And it will be a local studio. And then they start outsourcing. Um, they start working as outsourcing to make money to be able to eventually make their own games. But usually what happens is that outsourcing is lucrative enough that they just keep doing it and never switch to making creative work. That's effectively what happened in, in all of India for a long while, right? Is they had incredible programmers, incredible artists, incredible sound designers, incredible everything except for designers. Because all the work that was being done right there was um, outsourced work. So the designers would come from the West they would go, I want this and this and this. And they would go like, we'll make that. And when they wanted to switch the local games industry to creative work, because India was getting too expensive, because they were getting too talented, they were getting too good at their job, uh, people demanded more money. All the outsourcing moved to uh, places like Malaysia and the Philippines. Yeah. Right. So it's a way to build talent in a region. It's a way to build structure in a region. It's this exploitative model but much better and and generally what i've seen be much more successful is a small creative indie scene making the connections they need to uh, do what you're doing effectively how do we bring knowledge into the region right like how do we create this access how do we create these shorter connections to people that already have the connections so that at some point you don't need those people anymore either mm. right um i wrote a blog post 2014 2015 called the six stages of community development and it was very much based on all the travel i did and, and what i saw and i realized that it was the same story every time no matter where you went no matter how different the situation was right no matter whether you were at the tip of south uh, of south america or in the middle of africa or on um, islands just outside of australia uh, no matter where you went it was the same story you had your first stage, and I called them stages. You had your first stage, and there's a bunch of developers, but they don't know each other. Yeah. <laughs> so people are making games, but they've, they've never met. They don't even know. So they'll wonder, like, is there even anybody who cares to make games in this country, in this city? Yeah. Well, there might be 10, 20 people doing that, right? In the second stage, they found each other. They're talking, they're exchanging knowledge, but none of them has made a hit. None of them has made something that would give them the resources or the network to really step out of that. That's one of the hardest stages because you need to start bringing knowledge, bringing money, bringing um, um, critical acclaim 
by making good games. But to make good games, you need that knowledge, you need that money, you need those resources. Yeah. So you get this weird catch-22, right? In the third stage, the community has started to invite international talent. So they've started to talk to people around the world. They've started to make this structure where people can learn. And there isn't necessarily like somebody who has like achieved something yet, but it's getting closer and closer, right? And then eventually somebody does it. They make a hit game, it makes a lot of money. Or they make a critically acclaimed game that doesn't make a lot of money, but everybody's talking about it. Or the publishers are interested in it. Or their second game looks like it's going to get funded really quickly because the publishers trusted what happened with the first game, right? Whatever happens, eventually this this studio, this person, this, this uh, community leader um, sort of like happens due to success. And if this person is a good person, if this person shares what they've gotten, Right. If they share what they've built on the shoulders of everybody else around them, then they lift everybody up. And from that point, the community starts shifting because usually in stage one to three, people are trying to make what's popular. Right. They're trying to replicate successes and they're following the popular things. You'll see lots of games that are a little Robloxy, a little Minecrafty, a little uh, action platformer, or um, a zombie shooter, or whatever it is. Right. You'll see these. Things that are successful replicated. Because the point is not to prove that you can make something creative. The point is to prove that you can do this as a job. Yeah. And then when you hit stage four and somebody's done it, everybody, this is my favorite part, everybody rebels against the person who did it. <laughs> Happens every time. Because everybody will be like, we'll be like them, but <laughs> better or faster or more culturally relevant games or... Everybody rebels against them. And it's not a, a malicious rebelling. It's not like they hate them, but they just want to do something else than the studio that did it. Right? And at that point, sort of like the creative explosion in a place happens. Because now there is proof that you can make money with this. There are the connections that you need. There is the money in the community to organize events, to maybe bring in speakers from abroad or to fly out publishers, right? Or to get publishers to look at the pitches from the region, the, this... The studio becomes the community hub and then eventually more successes happen and you don't need a community hub anymore and now the place is now the community has turned into a game development community that is part of the industry right yeah. and then from there it grows bigger five is sort of like your your city or a place or a, a territory that has multiple game studios that are all successful or self-sustaining and a six is really rare. It's kind of where you become an international hub. There's only a few places around the world that are ever that. So San Francisco might be a good example, or Los Angeles, or Montreal, Montreal. or Stockholm. Yeah, those places. Um, so those are kind of like the six stages. It sounds like you, you, you might be at three. Yeah, we're definitely at like three. Like I was very much like, like when you're going through them, I'm like, yep, I remember that. I remember mm -hmm. that very well. <laughs> it's remarkable, but it's the same everywhere no matter where you go this is like whether you're talking about a small town far away like for example in in, um, in some countries you have these cities that are these really big development hubs right in the u.s san francisco los angeles uh, new york for a while boston chicago but they might have this this tiny town right between these cities and there's no big cities nearby and it just so happens to be that there's 200 indie developers in that town somehow the culture of that place became independent game development. They have similar problems, right? It's easier for them to get a visa, it's cheaper to fly, but they still go through these same six stages 
Um, so no matter where you go, it's the same story everywhere. Uh, I find that really interesting, but uh, it's cool to hear that you also like. You know, every time I explain this, I'm like, maybe this will be the exception. Nah. Right? <laughs> I don't think there's an exception. I think this is just how it works. Okay, so from basically like uh, what you've learned from these places, what is what are like your main takeaways, right? Like um, for say Zambia, right? Like we're basically at stage three. What right. could um, first of all, what could the developers do, and what could um, like nerd or taco, like what could we do to help us push through to the next stages um, better? I think what you're doing right now is really important, right? You're you're making these connections internationally with people that already have connections. And for a while, you'll use those people to create your own network. But eventually, you should get to a point where you don't need those people anymore, right? So, uh, you know, if there's a developer out there that needs connections with a publisher and they have a pitch, they should feel free to come to me and pitch it to me, right? And just tell me, like, hey, we're working on this thing. We heard that maybe you could introduce this to some people. And if I think the game is a good fit for the publisher, I'll connect them with a the publisher. If I think the game isn't a good fit, I'll explain why, right? But a lot of this part is about knowledge. It's about knowledge and resources. It's about bringing in knowledge. It's about finding ways to fund what you're doing. And a part of it is about trying not to do this by yourself. I think one of the things I learned very early on in games, when I was in the Netherlands and we didn't have an independent games community, I didn't know anything. And I made a lot of mistakes back then. I asked for too little money. I once got paid $30,000, which is a lot of money. Yeah, it is. Right? <laughs> it is. I got $30,000 for a game I was doing for Cartoon Network. The only money I'd made in games before that was $10,000 for a Flash game, right? So when Cartoon Network came to me, I said, oh my God, this is a huge company. We should ask for like three times as much. So we asked $30,000. You know what the guy said? What did he say? He said, okay. <laughs> and I was like, oh, was that like, was not enough money. He's like, let's sign right now. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, done, 30K, done. Um, and I just, I, I remember this feeling of, oh no, I asked too little. So a friend of mine, also in the Netherlands, also got a deal with Cartoon Network a few months later. And he came to me. Uh, it was Adult Swim. They, they were part of the same company, right? Um, he came to me and he said, like, Rami, how much did you ask? How much did you get? And, you know, you're technically not supposed to talk about that, but screw him, right? Like, whatever. <clears throat> I said, I said 30. And they said, yes, so you should ask for at least double. So he went back to them and he said $60,000. You know what the guy said? He's like, Okay. <laughs> okay. Right? Exactly what you'd expect. So this guy, I think his name was Tucker. Tucker left Adult Swim a few years ago. And I called him and I said, Mate, do you remember in 2011 you, you signed our game for $30,000? He's like, yeah, 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 the dinosaur game. I'm like, yeah, that one. I'm like, and then if you signed a friend's game for 60000 He's like, yeah, yeah, I remember that too. I'm like, you said okay to both of these, right? Without even negotiating. So I have a feeling you were funding these games for much more. How much... How much were you were you funding games for? And he looks at me and goes like, you know, quarter million, kind of Whoa. that. And I'm like, so if I had asked for a quarter million, you'd have gone, okay. He's like, yeah, maybe 200,000. You know, I would have negotiated, Jeez. but like 200K or something. I'm sitting there, I'm like, you couldn't have told me? 
He's like, no, it's my job to get the number down. <laughs> like that's fair, but come on, man! Like that was my first, that was my first paid gig. He's like, yeah, a lot of people doing their first, their first gig ask too little. Um, you know what? He's right. That's his job. He can't go to his boss and be like, well, they asked for thirty thousand, so I gave them seventy-five. Yeah, like he'd be fired. True, true. So, the the um, the thing that I could have done is I could have gone to other people. Right. I could have just looked at which games are out there and just send an email and just been like, hey, you know, we're thinking of working with Adult Swim. Uh, we're just trying to get a feeling for, you know, like budgets and, and timelines and just try. Like worst case scenario, they won't respond, right? But in general, I found that independent developers, even though we're technically competitors, we tend to cooperate more than we compete, right? We only cooperate on the market side of things. When the games come out and, you know, one game can be at the top, one game can be the Steam front page, one game can be, uh, you know, the, the game uh, when you open the, the Switch store or uh, whatever. That's where we compete. But in reality, when we work, when we're working, we collaborate. There's no reason for us to compete. Like, this stuff is hard enough. Surviving as an indie is hard enough without us trying to, like... You know, make things hard on each other. So, if you have a question, you can usually just email the developer, right? If you want to know something, you can usually just email the person that might have the answer. There, there's no shame in that. The, the thing I always tell people everywhere is, when you join the industry, take as much as you can. Take knowledge, take information, take um, talks, ask questions. Um, don't give anything back to those people. Give, give to the people that need it more than you, right? The people that don't have the time. or, But take. Focus on taking. Focus on getting better at what you do, getting more context for how things work. And then if you make it, then you give back more than you took. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of people immediately try to do everything. They try to give, they try to take, they try to build a game, they try to build a business, they try to be community leaders. And they burn themselves out every time they burn themselves out. Right? So focus on taking, and then when you're at a point where you're comfortable, start giving back. Sure, sure. Another thing I want to ask or find mm. out is, um, well, I'll go with stages first. Let's, let's start with funding, right? So mm -hmm. funding for a game, um, it varies from, obviously, from region to region, from scope and scale and stuff. What are the most viable ways you have seen for budding communities to get funding for different right. kinds of games so for like i'll give an example of zambia we don't necessarily you know we don't have an industry here yet um i right. think gaming is pretty commonplace now um gen z mm -hmm. i don't think there's any gen z person who says i'm a gamer like that's redundant but for millennials right. and above like that's still a thing and the millennials right. and above are the parents so mm -hmm. I think until the Gen Z people become parents, that's when I think um, a kid can be like, I want to be a game developer. And they'll be like, yeah, sure. But right now it's right. still very, you know, African parents type thing. You know what I mean? I, I know exactly. <laughs> yeah. What you mean. So, and I think it's the same even with, because um, we do events and all that stuff. Even when we're trying to right. get funding for events or tournaments or whatever, uh, even Global Game Jam, <laughs> uh, it's right. still a thing of meeting Boomer. CEOs and they're like right. okay so it's a hackathon I like that I'm like right. cool 
but it's for video games. And it's like, hmm, I don't like, know about that. I don't that. like that. Yeah. yeah, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, what, what have you figured, what have you seen be the best ways right. to get funding or growth? So actually speaking their language helps a lot, right? So if you say, okay, we want to do a game jam and we want to get a funding for that, uh, they'll never like the word games because they don't understand games. So when I would work with uh, local entrepreneurs, local funding, local governments, I would always focus on talking about uh, digital creativity, right? Uh, because digital creativity is sort of like... Um, it's more of a hot word, right? Like they understand that better and they think about all these things. They think about web, they think about, um, they think about social networks. They think about, um, about social media. They think about, um, they think about all these big money things, right? Um, and games are obviously part of that ecosystem, but if you just make it games, I think a lot of people that don't know games switch their brain to like an arcade hall, yeah. right? Uh, because that's what they remember from when they were kids or um, they switch their brain to like a Nintendo or a police station or a PlayStation or whichever it is, right? Um, but they don't understand the potential in games. And when you place it in a context of digital creativity, uh, it, it's much easier to explain like, listen, we can make stuff here relatively cheap, but we're still going to be earning money in dollars, right? If we can train these 30 people, how much? How many people come to your global game jam? Um, total, whole country, last year was about yeah. 40. Right, so if, if all of these 40 people become professional game developers, right? If 20 of them start studios, the amount of investment you'd make into those studios versus the amount of money they could bring in from outside the country is huge, true. right? True. Yeah. But what we need for that is we need for them to have a place to experiment and learn. And that's what we're offering. We're doing a hackathon to train these young digital creatives to make uh, internationally relevant work. And now you haven't said the word games at all. Yeah, but it's there. <laughs> but it's there, right? I think that's one of the big tricks, especially in a region like that. You want to approach it that way. Now, there are some fields where that's different. And in Africa, especially if you're working with um, the telecom providers or um, people that are already in digital media, right? People that are investing in web or that are investing in um, a digital economy. Uh, for them, you want to actually talk about games because they understand that games is an opportunity and they also understand that there is no local industry. So if they get in early, they might help define it. They have the monopoly, basically. Exactly. So... Those are basically your two your two major options. Now, if you want to get money from abroad, the thing I would look for is diversity grants. Uh, and there are more and more. Microsoft has one. PlayStation has one. Uh, I know the um, the team at Robot Teddy is setting up a prototype fund. Um, a lot of a lot of places are setting up funds specifically to find these games from places where it's harder to get funding. Because I think everybody is starting to realize that if we just keep funding the same games over and over, we won't get new games. We'll get some new games, right? Because the, every person is different. Every, but we won't get the sort of like the big new thing I mean, that be, we haven't seen for. It's going to be Uncharted 6. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, 
So there is more investment there, and you just need to get the confidence to, to emo out to those, right? If you're talking to Microsoft, look at the ID at Xbox team, ask about diversity funds. If you want to do PlayStation, look at their indie team and, and see if they have funding. But these funds do exist, and I know that the term like diversity fund feels kind of bad. Yeah, it does, actually. Right? <laughs> if it, 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 it feels bad. Um, but the thing is, and this is one thing I've learned... Um, Sometimes it's better to get the money from a place you don't necessarily fully agree with why they're doing it, right? Because the truth is that the people that have that money are the same people that exploited our lands, our science, our knowledge, all of that stuff to get that money. Sometimes even our stories, man. <laughs> right? So you don't have to care whether they're giving it to you for the good or the right reason. You just take their money. They're giving it to you for bad reasons, whatever. Take the money, build your stuff, make your own money, and then done. Right? These grants are usually not even payback money. They just give it to you. Um, but it, honestly, it's our money anyway. Like they built the they built their world on our on our like on our backs. So I don't know. I don't know if I can curse. But... <laughs> Feel free. Fuck them. I I, I um, do. <laughs> right. So uh, yeah. No. Like I said, fuck them. Uh, take the money and and build stuff. So it doesn't matter, right? Like it's really easy to 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 want to care about where the money comes from, but the reality is, the situation we're in is not our fault. The fact that our economies are weaker is not our fault. The the fact that we're further away is not our fault. The fact that there is no industry around us is not our fault. So if there is a way to get past that by taking somebody else's money, take their money, right? Uh, if, if I hadn't taken money from some people or some, some things back in the days where I'm like, I'm not sure about this, um, but I guess it's money, uh, I probably wouldn't have had the chance. Like, obviously, if somebody is like plain old evil, yeah, don't take their money. But if they're doing it and they're calling it a diversity fund and it, it feels like they're giving you like just like a, a handout, like you have to beg or something for money, it's not begging. Just money, they're offering it for this exact cause. Just take it. Say thank you if you feel like it. Don't say thank you if you don't feel like it and make your stuff. True, true. Right? So that's one option. And then finally, just publishers. Like, I can guarantee you some of the stuff that's being made at Zambia, some of the stuff that's made anywhere is of a high enough quality, is of an interesting enough concept that a publisher would back it, not for what it is now, but what it will be if it's funded. The thing a lot of people, when they go to publishers, they're thinking about the game it is right now. They're thinking about the prototype. They're thinking about where it is. They're not thinking about where it goes. Publishers fund where it goes. So I see a lot of people and they're like, okay, yeah, we, if we can get $70,000 of funding for this platformer, we can make like five levels. And you know what I would ask? I would ask of that developer, what would you make out of that game if you had half a million dollars? Half a million dollars. What could you make out of that game? Right? What kind of art would it be? What kind of game would it be? How big would the game be? Right? Mm. What kind of team would you have by the time you're done with that game? What would your next game look like? Right? Instead of trying to think small, think about what if I have the funds to make this big? And they go to the publisher with that idea. You don't go to the publisher with where you are now. You use that as proof that you can make it. You go to the publisher with the thing that you're going to make when you have the money, when you have their marketing. You don't go like, well, you know, we don't have a lot of reach, so 
No, I don't know how many copies you're gonna. No, you're gonna have the publisher's reach. If the publisher can't sell your game for a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand copies, they're probably a bad publisher for a game that's <laughs> half a million dollars. All right. So, stop thinking about where you are now. Start thinking about what it's going to be when you're done. Because the honest truth is that's what all of us do. None of us goes to a publisher and goes like, "Well, you know, we have a little prototype. There's three levels, like so." You know, uh, right now I I could ask for seventy thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars. No, we go to a publisher and go like, "Here's a big game." You know. Or one-tenth of the way. Here's a prototype of what it is right now. But uh, when we're done, we're going to have all of this. It's going to look like that. Here's a sketch of what it's going to look like. Here's the four people we still need to hire to do it. And uh, yeah, when we're done, we're going to we're gonna think it's going to make half a million units. You know, it's going to do half a million units at $10. So that's five mil. So fund us for a million. That's... Right? I mean, when you put it like that, it, it kind of... It's a no-brainer, but... The fact that we don't really think of it that way, I think, is, is telling. <laughs> it's hard. This is hard because, you know, you get raised with money as a thing you are careful with, right? The way you think, and this is not just, this is not just in Africa. This is all people. Every India I talk to, no matter where they grow up, the way you think of money as a business is so different from the way you think about money as an individual. I still go to the store. I grew up with an Egyptian immigrant dad and a Dutch mother who, who quit her school to be able to support our family, right? So we didn't have a lot of money. So for me, still, when I go to the supermarket, I still buy the cheapest version of pretty much everything, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And then I go back home and I negotiate a $10 million contract. <laughs> and that's part of, you You need to be able to start making that switch, but right? Like for me, for me, two euros is a lot of money, but I will happily negotiate two million euros on a, on a, on a contract deal because I think the game will be worth two million euros more than I'm being paid. So I will happily sit there and be like, I think the game is just worth more. Like, what if we do What if we do 10% more? And then I'm in my brain, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> the amount of money I'm talking about makes no sense. But then you start breaking it down and you're like, okay, if this project, because I negotiate on behalf of a lot of other projects, right? If this project has like 12 people working for them and they're working on it for two years and you start adding up all those numbers, all those costs, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. Right. But the one thing for in the region that I specifically want to repeat like one more time is please don't try to sell your game based on what it costs you to make it. That's not the point. You're not selling that. The example I always give is very simple. Uh, you know Among Us, right? Yep. Among Us, when they made that first game, if they had gone to a publisher, right, and they said, we have this weird game, it's a little ugly, um, cooperative by an indie so you know it might be a little buggy uh, and everybody just kind of takes tasks and then you can backstab each other what would a publisher have paid for that maybe like 200,000 right yeah maybe a small less. amount right if this same team the same people that made Among Us go to a publisher now and they say we're going to make Among Us 2 with the same team nothing changed we're just making a sequel to Among Us 2. Would they accept $200,000? No way. Of course not. They're going to be talking 20 million, 30 million, 40 million. I don't know what it is, but that game makes a lot of money. Right? So when you're talking to a publisher, you're not talking about... They will always try and trick you into giving you what it costs to make the game. That's not the point. The point is, how much are they going to make with the game? Right? So when you do your budget... 
Yes, absolutely. Calculate how much you actually need to make the game, but feel free to use higher salaries, right? Feel free to make up for that difference in economy. And if you go like, well, you know, isn't life a lot cheaper there? It's like, yeah, but you're still going to make monies in US dollars. So why would we get less? Just because we live somewhere where the dollar is worth more. If this team was in the Netherlands, you'd pay them that. Why not us? Add a special international destabilization <laughs> insurance. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Add a, add a, well, we remember what you did here. So uh, pay us. No, shit. Like, come on. Like, it's really easy to want to do that to just because everybody teaches budgets as like, okay, how much does it cost? Like, the reality is like, if you can tell a publisher that they're going to make three times more than they're putting into the game, if you can do a pitch that convinces them that your $200,000 idea is going to make them $600,000, they'll fund the game. They're not going to look at them and be like, oh, we're going to make only $400,000. If we exploited these people a little harder, we could have made $430,000. Like, that's not <laughs> how they think. They're just looking at it like, well, the numbers check out. Okay, let's go. So you got to get a little confidence with that, right? And it's a little bit of like getting over the idea that the way this business works is about what you have right now, about what you're spending. It's about what money can you generate for a publisher. And then when you talk to a publisher, keep that in mind. If anybody wants to try this, if anybody is listening and they want to try this, they want to practice a pitch, feel free to find me, right, on Twitter. I uh, If you go to book.ramiismail.com, there's a 20-minute phone call option that's entirely free for anybody from Zambia, right? Anybody, honestly, from, from larger Africa, just click that, book a 20-minute phone call, it's free, and I'll listen to your pitch and I'll tell you how to make it better. I'll tell you what your budget should be. Um, I'll tell you whether you're like lowballing yourself or you're leaving some potential for what the game could be, right? Because a lot of this is like general advice and everybody is different, but if I can actually see the pitch, I can tell you how to improve how to improve it, right? Uh, so that's entirely free. Like anybody who's listening, please feel free to use that because, you know, it's nonsense that somebody in San Francisco can just walk to GDC and learn this. And if you're in Zambia, there, you can't walk to GDC without, what is it, $3,000 and a visa? Yeah. <laughs> Very true. All right. So we get our project funded, right? The mm -hmm. next hard bit marketing and i think even obviously this is super super different for every region even the big publishers sometimes have problems with marketing what right. have you noticed is the are some of the best ways to market a product right. from our region because i know that the fact that it is from a new region it's a new studio that has a certain spice to it so how right. do you yeah. leverage that and what, I mean what have you seen that works most of it is very similar to, to normal marketing, right? So number one is always the same thing. It's build your own audience. Uh, build your own audience means that you create a community context for people to join. You create a Discord, a Twitter account, a newsletter, whatever it is, a way to reach people over and over. Because it's really easy to get people to see your game and go, oh, that's cool. But it's really hard to get people to follow your game and be aware of new news, right? You see all these viral gifs and, and viral tweets of games and they check the game account and like three weeks later they've only got like a hundred extra followers right because in the tweet that went viral they didn't put a call to action they didn't didn't put a like follow us to keep up to date they just have a viral tweet and then it fades again right 
Now, that doesn't mean a viral tweet is bad, because if you get a viral tweet, you might get publishers reaching out to you, and that's always good. But uh, and making that's how sure I that you're... Sable. Like, I, those, that right. viral tweet of its uh, animation, I'm like, this looks fucking cool. And, right. But you went and followed it. I did, yeah. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of people that looked at it and went like, that's cool, and then just retweeted it, and then just continued with their day. And it wasn't until they saw it in the press again that they went like, oh, I remember that. That, that was good. And then maybe bought it. Right. So the first step is community creation. Create community. Create a context around you that people want to follow. The second one is much simpler. It's figure out your story. Every game has a story. And I don't mean the story of the game. I mean the story of the game's development. The narrative. The narrative of what you're trying to make. The narrative of what you're trying to achieve. The narrative of the creation of this game. Right. Figuring out that story in such a way that you can tell it as a compelling story is a huge part of it. And this is where what you said plays into it, right? If you make games in a place where making games is hard, that is in automatically a better story. Because people like underdogs. It's just how it is, right? People like when the story is, this was a remarkably hard thing to do, but we did it anyway because we cared, right? Now, that doesn't mean that it has to be your only narrative, Right? It can be because you didn't like the previous games in the genre. Or you saw a combination that nobody else saw. Or you uh, were inspired by something local and then decided to make that game, right? Um, stories like that work really well. And the less standard the story is, the better it is. I mean, I, Unpacking just came out. And it's a game about unpacking boxes when you move houses. Something that most people have done. Nobody ever made a game about it. And... You listen to the story of how that game gets made and why it got made and what it stands for. And you're like, wow, I'll check it out, right? And the third one is just press outreach. You just reach out to press, you reach out to influencers, you reach out to anybody that you can find that will take your story. But you need to have that story, right? Because a lot of people think the games press cares about games, right? And they don't. It's not their job. Their job is to get clicks, right? Yeah. And people say that as sort of like this cynical thing, right? But it's not cynical. It's the same way as a game developer. We want to get sales. They're just doing their job. Their job is to get clicks. And the way they get clicks is by telling stories. That's what the press do. They're storytellers. They tell the story of how they feel a game is. They tell the story of development. They tell the story of the situation in games. They tell the story of development in certain places. They tell the story of who is upset about what, right? Yeah. They're storytellers. So for the press, if you have a story that's worth telling, that's way more interesting for them than a video game. Because you don't really need the press to follow video games, right? You can literally just go to like metacritic.com or like a list of upcoming games and you know games. Yeah. It's the stories that matter, right? It's the voices of the writers that matter. So find the people at those websites that have the voices that fit your game and reach out to them. Because they might be the people that tell your story. And again, the more of these you do, marketing is all about repetition, right? Nobody looks at a game once and goes like, well, you know, sometimes it happens. But most people look at a game and they go like, well, that's cool. And then they just kind of forget about it. And then they'll see it again two weeks later and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah that's cool. And then they'll go like, maybe I should follow this, right? And then when it, if they don't follow it, maybe when it comes out, they're like, oh, yeah, that game. And now they might check it out. But the more you can get people to see your game, the better your chances are, honestly. 
So marketing is just that. And a lot of people think about marketing as like, oh, we need to get 10,000 wish lists. We need to get 50,000 views. And you drop that one more than yesterday. That's your goal. Just every day, try to get one extra person to follow you, one extra person to watch your video, one extra person to join your Discord. Just one a day, right? If you make things too big, they become unsurmountable. Especially when you're small, just make your goal small. If it works, if it just starts, if it starts gliding and you suddenly have 30,000 people in your Discord, okay, awesome. But if you make that your goal, you're always going to be disappointed. And especially as an independent developer, your motivation is so important. And if you start damaging your own motivation, you're never going to finish a video game. <laughs> that's, and that's the hardest part, man. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard because, you know, people, especially, you know, in, in places where money is hard to get, I always tell people the same thing, right? You need three things to make a video game. You need money, right? You need knowledge. You need motivation. Now, if you don't have money, but you have knowledge, you have motivation, you can make a video game. It'll take a long time because you're probably doing it part-time. You're doing it in your evenings. You might be doing it with people that have to get a job, so they stop working on the project or they abandon the project or they just disappear because there's no money involved, right? But you have the knowledge, you have the motivation. You can make that video game. Now, if you don't have uh, knowledge, but you have money, you have motivation, you can hire people, right? If you have the money, you can just hire people that do have the knowledge so you can make the game. If you have money, if you have knowledge, but you don't have motivation, it doesn't matter. You're not going to finish a video game. There's no way to finish a video game if you're no longer motivated to do it. You're an entrepreneur. You need the discipline, you need the motivation, you need the drive to finish a thing. You need the drive to take care of yourself. You need the drive to make sure that your team is happy. You need to care. And if you stop caring because you've burned yourself out or you've demotivated yourself with these big goals that you're not going to reach, right? You're just going to give up on this dream of game development. And it always hurts my heart to see that, right? People making good work, but they set the goals for themselves so high, right? They worked themselves to the bone and beyond. They didn't ask people because they felt they had to do it alone. They don't want to ask for support because they don't want to look weak, whatever. All of that nonsense, right? All of that nonsense. It doesn't matter. Make the thing you care about. Make it healthy. Make it smart, right? Set goals that are achievable. Small goals. Goals that you can reach, right? And yes, they can be high goals. Yes, they can be lofty goals. Yes, they can be ambitious goals. Please be ambitious. But don't, don't push yourself beyond what's reasonable, right? If you have two people in your Discord, set an ambitious goal of 500 or 100. Don't set an ambitious goal of 10,000. Don't look at Among Us and be like, we want to be like that. I, don't, I wouldn't look at Among Us and be like, I want to be like that. <laughs> right? I have 200,000 followers on Twitter. I'm an industry ambassador. I'm known around the industry as somebody who makes games, who helps people make games. I would not dare to dream of setting a goal for myself that is as high as an Among Us or a Minecraft or a Roblox. Yes, I want big things. Not that. I want goals that I can look at in three years and go like, I got pretty far. Or, you know, uh, I did it. Because it keeps me going, right? Indeed. Indeed. Well said. Well said. All right. That was super, super informative. Um... Enlightening for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually it's i i have to ask mm -hmm. you, you know 
you've said it yourself there's a bit of that you have a bit of a cynical point of view which is important it's realistic and it helps right. you helps you keep your feet on the ground it helps you stay focused that hey look right. this is the real world it's not a fantasy world right so i don't know has that cynicism ever affected your you know your art your creative side yeah way? of course of course like i think and this is important right i'm also a producer i'm a programmer producer and i do marketing and business but as a producer i think one of the biggest skills you can ever learn and the producer on the team right uh, is the person who tries to make sure the game ships right you've got your creative director the person in, our, in charge of creativity they're the dreamers and they've got your producers who are basically like the hammer that like just kind of like slams them back down into the real world right and it's best to have those be two different people but as a producer one of the first tricks you learn is always for everything look at your best case scenario look at your worst case scenario right and i learning to identify the worst case scenario can sometimes be really surprising right because you might have a best case scenario you're you're launching a game online game multiplayer game right your best case scenario is the game is a huge success everybody's playing it right you might think that your worst case scenario is nobody plays the game you know what your actual worst case scenario is a lot of people want to play your game but it breaks huh. <laughs> that's your actual worst case scenario your worst case scenario is very close to your best case scenario the difference being that the servers break and everybody stops caring before you fix it. That's your worst case scenario. Learning to identify your worst case scenario is really important. So that cynicism, that cynicism that I have is part of hope, right? And it's important that your cynicism is hopeful. You have something like hopeful cynicism. It's a version of realism. It's a version of looking at things and being like, okay, instead of pushing myself to impossible goals, let's push myself to the goal that is within a week. It's less about I'm never going to reach big goals. It's more about giving me the space to reach those goals, right? I've burned out twice in my career. And I've wanted to be a game developer since I was six. And I will tell you, when I was 22 and I was burned out, and every time I would open a, a programming uh, interface and I would see the cursor blink and my head would just burst open like a migraine, a headache, like unholy headache. I've never felt it before. It's terrifying because this is all I'm good at. I'm a game developer. I've never practiced at anything else, right? Yeah, I can draw. Yeah, I can write. Yeah, I can do a little bit of music. Like, I'm a creative. I like creating things. But this is this is me. All of my life, I've worked towards this. And then at 22, to realize that you've pushed yourself so hard that you might have lost it forever. My God, that's terrifying. Scariest thing, right? So you get a little... You get a little uh, maybe it's not it is cynicism it is you're right it is cynicism but it's a hopeful cynicism it's a cynicism with a hope that you will reach that more careful goal so you can push for bigger goals but the one thing you have to keep in mind that cynicism has to be internal it has to be yours when you talk to an investor when you talk to a publisher when you talk to a grant you don't talk about that right. you talk about potential right because that's ultimately that's what it's about. It's about potential. It's about realizing the potential of your creativity, of your art, of uh, what you want to make or say or do. Right? That's our, that's what we do. We pick one of the most fascinating mediums on earth, a place where people can go into our worlds and interact with them, where they can feel all the feelings you could feel in movies, but you can also feel regret. You can feel responsibility. You can feel pride. You can't feel that anywhere else. Right? In sports. And play in games 
That's where you feel those things. We picked this fascinating medium to make these things, right? If you go too hard, if you burn too bright, you burn out. Don't burn too bright. Take it easy. There's time, right? Every life has, somebody's told me this, but every life, assuming a game takes two years to make, every, every life is about 20 games that you can make. That doesn't sound like a lot. But I can tell you now, I'm 10 years in. I've released way more than that. <laughs> and I still have a long road ahead of me, hopefully, right? If all goes well, if, if my health keeps up, if, if, I'm, if I get lucky, I still have a lot of games I could make, right? And I don't regret any of the smaller games I've made because every time I've learned something, I've achieved something, I've grown my brand, I've grown my reach, I've grown my audience. I'm proud of everything I've achieved, even though sometimes it was a little smaller than maybe I could have achieved. But I'm still here, right? I'm not burned out. I didn't burn my chances. I didn't take a risk that was unfounded. So, yeah, it affects your creativity. Of course it does. Everything affects your creativity. But I don't think it, it affects it in a negative way. I think constraints help you be a better creative. So setting smart constraints keeps you healthy, keeps you happy, and keeps you making cool stuff. Well, that's that's great to hear. I tease you that, that it's it, it's not you know so dour. <laughs> I, <laughs> I like that phrase you say: cynicism with a bit of hope. Right. Yeah, I think it's important. So, how did you get your mom into video games? Like, how how did that happen? How did she become a streamer? Like, I remember so, when yeah. you were tweeting, like, before she had an account. Like, you were tweeting, like, when right. she was playing, I think it was Final Fantasy, right? Like, I think that was the first uh-huh. game, yeah. Uh-huh. And I was like, like, that's a, wow, what a first, like, game. Sure, let's right. go. And I was like, right. oh, crap, she actually, like, finished it. Yeah, right? okay. yeah. Like, yeah, so how, yeah. how did that happen? It happened because, uh, so I was traveling a lot, right? I was, uh, you know, meeting all these developers around the world and, and teaching and learning and, I was gone about 300, 320 days a year. So I was never in the Netherlands. I never saw my mom. I never saw my dad. I never saw anybody back at home. And um, when I would come home, my mom would always ask about, you know, what, what happened. And as I was traveling, one time I came home and I said like, so yeah, I was visiting Phil. And my mom was like, oh, which one? I'm like, uh, Tibetowski. She's like, uh, Octodad, right? Like, how do you know this? <laughs> and she's like, oh, you know, I read, I read your Facebook. I had a Facebook back in those days. She's like, I read your Facebook and I read your Twitter. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure just from reading my Facebook, you would not know that Phil Tobitowski made Octodad. She's like, well, you know, I read some games news every now and then. I'm like, okay, wait, wh- which Phil's exist? And she's like, well, Tobitowski, you've got Spencer, uh, <laughs> Fish, uh, Harrison. <laughs> and I'm just like, wait... How much games news do you read? And she's like, you know, enough to keep up. And I'm like, why? She's like, just so you know, when you come home, we can talk about how you are instead of how the games industry is. And I'm like, aw. You know all this stuff about the games industry, but you've never played a video game. And she's like, no. How about this? I'll get you an Xbox, right? And we'll pick a video game. And we'll see whether you like it. And she was like, well, you know, I don't know. And I was like, we'll just give it a go. If it doesn't work for you, done right so i asked her what kind of game what kind of things she liked right movies music and my mom really likes lord of the rings 
So I went and I looked at the Lord of the Rings games and then just looked at a whole bunch of decapitations and arms being chopped off. And I'm like, maybe not that one. <laughs> um, but I tried to kind of drill down to, to what my mom liked about those worlds. And it's basically a bunch of kids who unwillingly end up in a world-shattering story where eventually they defeat God or <laughs> Satan or whatever it is, right? Um, she likes that story. So I started looking around and I had just finished Final Fantasy XV uh, a few years earlier, I think. And I just kind of realized that this is a very accessible game. If you put it on easy, you can't game over. You spend a lot of time walking, but without like platforms, without falling, without death, without anything. You're just walking. It's like, maybe, maybe this would be a good game to start, right? And the one thing I really didn't want to do is I didn't want to start around a casual game. Because that's not how I started either, right? I started playing, like, big games when I was a kid. Just whatever was on the computer, right? I didn't get, like, the, the training wheels. It was just, like, figure out this game. Good luck. And somehow <laughs> at, like, a, at seven years old, I figured out how Roller Coaster Tycoon worked, which is a literal accounting game with, like, physics and roller coaster, right? So clearly you can learn that way. So we started on the Xbox, she played Final Fantasy XV, and over months of me just sitting with her and like sort of explaining how things worked, uh, she kind of figured it out. And then she played, um, then we switched to a PlayStation because PlayStation has share screen. So I could watch as she was playing her game. So she played Dragon Age Inquisition. And we picked that game because in Final Fantasy, she never really played with like weaknesses and strengths. And I thought maybe Dragon Age would give her that that ability. She didn't really do that in Dragon Age either. She was like an archer. Then she tried to play Persona 5 because I told her like, okay, this game, you have to use strength and weakness, but you have more time to think, right? Yeah. So she played Persona 5 and then that game actually blocked your ability to uh, share screen. Because Atlas didn't want spoilers. Right. Uh, so instead, we just made her a Twitch channel. <laughs> so I could watch it from there. And then everything just kind of got out of hand really quickly. <laughs> so she's now like finishing Mass Effect 3. She has a little community of people that check out her stream. She has a Twitter account. She writes a blog with what she thought of games that she's played. Um, she always says that the thing that games gave her is that she got an entirely new world, right? Or entirely new worlds in plural, right? And my mom loves these worlds. Like after she finished God of War, she went to Norway because the game is based on uh, the Norwegian mountains, right? Uh, and she just wanted to see them in real life, right? Um, but also she's been learning this language that we secretly have been learning. We're not aware of this, but we've learned so much video game language, right? <laughs> like my mom, when she was playing Final Fantasy 15, have you, have you played Final Fantasy 15? Yeah, I have, yeah. So Arden, right? The antagonist. Kind of confusing guy, kind of spooky, long black jacket, a uh, weird wing on his arm hat is slightly diagonal long purple hair does the like japanese sort of like confusing head tilt whenever he speaks has a bit of like a kind of like discordant theme you know uh, i was like i wonder how tropey this is i wonder if my mom will recognize this guy as shady 
Because that's the way he's meant to feel, right? So my mom gets the golden key, which is where you meet all the, all the, uh, Arden for the first time. And she calls me. She's like, Rami, I got to a new place. I'm like, where did you end up? She's like, um, it's called Golden Key. I'm like, oh, cool. She's like, yeah, I met a shady guy. I'm like, oh, tell me about him. She's like, yeah, so he was wearing all black. I'm like, uh-huh. And she's like, yeah, he was kind of like standing around. I'm like, uh-huh. She's like, yeah, and he just tried to sell me all sorts of like guns and swords. And I'm like, wait, what? She's like, yeah, I just, I didn't trust it. I ran away. I'm like, what are you talking So I boot up the game. I go to Golden Key. And like five steps before the trigger where you meet Arden, there's a shopkeeper. <laughs> and the shopkeeper is just a dude standing in front of a van in black leather jacket. And you walk up to him and he's got like, hey, you want to buy some weapons? <laughs> and to us, that's the shopkeeper. Yeah. We just look at that. We're like, okay, that sounds good. Uh, let's see what you have. My mom is just like, this random stranger... <laughs> Just unannounced, just opens his jacket and goes like, swords, guns, <laughs> explosives? What do you want? So my mom is like, nope, nope, I'm out, I'm back. <laughs> and it's so much more sensible than what we do. It is, it is. We go, we're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, this random stranger on the street is like, you want to buy some swords? <laughs> we just go like, yeah, actually, let me get that one, that one's better than what I own. I'll take two Uzis as well, and uh, gonna get five grenades and a healing potion. Like, we have learned so much you know like a cracked wall we look at a cracked wall we're like you need to blow that up yep. it's gonna be a treasure behind that my mom looks at a cracked wall and she's like oh this building looks pretty st uh, unstable maybe <laughs> i should get out of here i'm like that you should blow it up she's like what can the building collapse i'm like no the building won't collapse that's not how that like that's not how video games that's not how we do it that's so fascinating there's a youtuber oh how, come, how am i blanking on his names uh like but i think his first viral video was like uh um, his wife, like his wife was playing games for the mm -hmm. first time. I think the one that stuck out to me, which is similar to that, is in Doom 20, 2016, right? Doom 2016? Yeah, 2016. Yeah. The good Doom. Yeah. She, <laughs> she, uh, she moved the, the red barrels to doors so that right. she could blow up the door, the barrel to open the doors. And that's right. like not how that works, but like that makes nope. sense, right? Because she shot a barrel and it blew up. Yep. So it's like, okay. So to open the doors, I can just she pushed a barrel across a whole All stage, the way over. and and it didn't open. And she's like, "Why is it working?" And I'm like, "That's so fascinating." Yep, and she's right. But that's the thing: we have learned sort of to read game design. We've learned to read level design. You know, you walk to a space, there's shoulder high walls. You know, there's a shootout, mm. right? Because there's shoulder high walls, I can take cover behind those. So, because there's shoulder high walls, I understand that there's going to be a fight. Right, you walk into a space, you see barrels, you know there's going to be enemies. Right, we don't get surprised as easily, but we also can read the logic. We understand, okay, we have had, we have these four mechanics. Given this space, likely what I have to do is this. What I have to look for is that. Well, if you bring 60 years of real life experience to a game, you're going to look at it as a real life thing. Yeah. We don't look at it that way. We've grown from when we were what six, eight, ten years old. To look at these game worlds as their own separate thing. They're separate from life. Right? Yes, they overlap with life. Yes, we learn things in games. Yes, we gain skills in, in, in games. But we understand that inherently they're these constructed worlds for us to play in. And my mom just approaches it as if it was real life. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm learning so much watching her play. And like I said, she's finishing Mass Effect 3 now. My mom is a lot more ruthless. 
than I thought she would be. That was like, my mom is going to be Paragon all the way. She's an angel, right? My mom is like the loveliest kind of human. And she's like, we can sacrifice three politicians to save 100,000 human <laughs> lives. Well, I guess they are dead. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That, did you just sacrifice the council? She's like, yeah, no, they're just a bunch of politicians. They were annoying me as well. I'm like, mom. <laughs> Hey, politicians um, are annoying. As, as, right. as, my mom is just like, I don't like politicians anyway. I'm like, whoa. Okay. Fair. Very fair. But also just not what I expected from my mom. I've I've come to understand watching her play Mass Effect that if there ever was a zombie apocalypse, I need to look. I need to watch my shoulder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if my mom could save a lot of people, then I don't know. I don't know if this is gonna end well for me. Uh, yeah, it's wonderful. My dad started playing games the other day as well, but he's he's starting on like the Wii, right? Like Backgammon and like a little darts game. But, uh, yeah, somehow both of my parents are playing video games now. How about that? That's, that's awesome. How long did it take for them to accept your career? My mom instantly. Instantly. She was just like, yeah, you love this. And she's Dutch, right? So for her, it's just like, you do whatever you're passionate about because if not, you'll get government like support. My dad, being Egyptian, I tried to convince him that it was a real job for years, right? I think the first time he had a little respect for it was after Ridiculous Fishing came out. And he was he was doing the complaint thing about, about uh, you know, me just playing video games all day. And I just kind of like mid-sentence opened the bank account and just showed the number to him. And he just looked at it and he went like, can you get me a ticket to Egypt? <laughs> um... So that was the first time. I think the moment he really got it is in 2018. I won this award called the Game Developer's Choice Ambassador Award. And it's an award that is handed out each year to a person who has made a large contribution to the industry as a whole. Right? It's the biggest award I've ever received. And I'm extremely humbled still for, for having that confidence from my peers and from the industry. But... Uh, that award was handed out in San Francisco, and I invited my family to come out for it. So my mom and dad were there, and um, when my dad sat down in that room in front of like thousands of other game developers, he looked at me and he said, "Like, are they all here for you?" I'm like, "No, dad. There's like 20 awards being handed out. They're not all here for me." And then I got announced, and I got on the stage, and there was this standing ovation that took minute, a minute, more than a minute. Uh, and my, my teleprompter started going like, okay, start talking, right? It started moving. And I'm like, oh, uh, okay, I guess I'll start my speech. Um, so I gave my speech and I sat back down next to my dad and he looked at me. He's like, told you they're here for you. <laughs> and uh, I think that was the moment he just, he just accepted that maybe he doesn't understand this world, but his son is doing well, yeah. right? His son will, will be able to fend for himself and his son has the respect and the money that comes with a real job. Um, and he understood he can brag with this, which I don't know if that's the same across Africa, but nice. like in Egypt, yeah. that's a big deal. It like is. being able to sit down with some some uncles and like friends and just be like, so what does your son do? Just kind of sit there with like a cup of tea and like a game of Bagaman in Egypt and you go like, oh, my son is like a, an astronaut. And my dad being able to go like, oh yeah, my, my son is uh, winning uh, big awards in uh, video games. You know? Yeah. Uh, that that's that's like a thing. <laughs> it's a really weird thing, but it's a thing. I think as soon as he realized he could brag with it, it was fine. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I do. I'm very curious. Okay, Mr. Rami, 
what have you played yes. this year that has piqued your interest that you really like? What's your game of the year, man? My game of the year? God, that's a difficult one because it's been a really good year for video games, right? Um, I mentioned unpacking earlier during the episode. I just finished that. It's very small, but it's very smart. You know, like you don't get to you don't get to play games that are that smart very frequently. Uh, Hitman Three was early in the year. That was super good. I really enjoyed that. Um, I think I liked Deathloop better when I started than when I finished it. Right. Um, Bowser's Fury was really good. Metroid Dread was really good. But you know, I'm I'm I'll be really honest. I'm a sentimental man, right? I I have a lot of love for certain games that were really important to me. And for me, there was one game that took me from being in high school and not even knowing that video game development was a job, right? That I could do to being in um video game university in the Netherlands, right? To being an independent developer about to release his first hit game, right? My life changed completely throughout the course of Mass Effect. Yeah. <laughs> I played the first Mass Effect game when I didn't even know that I could make video games as a living. And I, I, I finished the story of my Shepard when Flambeer was a real thing. And I was, I was making money making games and I was traveling the world. And um, for me, Mass Effect Legendary Edition is just, it, I've not touched Mass Effect since that first playthrough because that playthrough wow. was so definitive for me that I, I couldn't imagine replaying it. And then when the remaster came out, I was like, I'll play it once more, right? I'll just play this game once more and I'll probably play it the same way, right? I probably won't change anything. I'll probably still be like mostly Paragon. Uh, I'll still make the same choices. And I just replayed Mass Effect to just live that world once more. And I made all the same choices. As far as I could remember, I made all the same choices. Um, and I loved it. It was so good to be back in that world, and it was so good to meet my shepherd again, and just remember that, you know, life kind of goes fast across video games as you develop them, right? Like, while I was going through that change in my life, people released three video games, right? The teams at Bioware released three video games, and now, now you know, you sort of relativate your life along games, and I just kind of look at, you know, in the time I make three games, which other kid is out there, like, learning that this is a real thing, yeah. right? Mass Effect is very special for me that way. And, and getting to replay it, it just, yeah, there's no way that is not my game of the year. Because <laughs> it's it's very much a game of my life. So I, uh, a lot I of love value. getting to replay it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not... It's not the best game of the year, right? It's not the, the, the most unique game of the year. It's not a Loop Hero or a, a near remake or a, a, what is it, Returnal or uh, whatever else is, are people talking about. It's not, I can't argue that this is the best thing that was made this year. It was just the most meaningful thing to me. I, I think I'm going to feel the same way when Halo Infinite comes out because that's my... <laughs> Like your story, that's me with Halo. Like that's right. That's me um, going over to my friend's place with 
that, with my Xbox that, and plugging in and, and playing multiplayer across rooms like that. That's my Halo story too. <laughs> I'm, I'm the same way. I can't wait for Halo because the same group of friends that I've played Halo 1 with is still the group of friends that I played Halo 5 with. Even though we barely see each other in real life, whenever a Halo game comes out, we're just those kids again. We just grab the Xboxes, we find one of our places that has enough TVs, we hook up the Xbox and we play Halo. Yep. Um, I can't wait. I'm so excited. So am I. So am I. All right, Mr. Rami, thanks so much for, for doing this. We certainly learned a lot and it was super, super fun. I hope you had fun as well. <laughs> I had such a great time. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks, Robin. Um, uh, yeah, next time I'll, I'll update you earlier so that you're more prepared. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, some, some, sometimes I'm, I'm not a creative like either of you. I'm, I'm much more. I, I've got a, or I'll say a regular job, if you can say that. I don't do much of the creative side. So for me, this sort of episode where it's mostly listening to that sort of stuff is more about you know just keeping quiet and learning so I, i've i've gotten my good experience out of that so don't worry about it <laughs> awesome thanks man all right mr Rami, thanks so much for this and uh yeah we'll let everyone know i don't know if you've got anything to plug nope just if people want to reach out because they have questions if they're game developers if they're thinking of going into games if they they've got a problem find me on twitter t-h-a underscore rami or book a phone call book dot rami uh reach out if you're making something cool please let me know if you're doing interesting work in the region let me know uh you know games are a beautiful global language and i think everybody should be able to speak it the same way everybody can play it so if I can help with that, just reach out. 